Hey y'all, it's Danielle. Surprise! Back for episode 25, Ain't No Free Lunch. This week, Kaikina and I talk the drama surrounding the Alabama special election and the allegations of Roy Moore's pedophilia that's being defended by his party members. My skin crawls just thinking about it. Then we shift into the opioid crisis that the United States is currently facing by framing it in context with America's grotesque response to the crack epidemic of the 1980s. There's a lot going on, y'all, and we've got quite a few solutions for you on the way. All right, let's see. So what's up, Danielle? Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Today is going to be a great day. Yeah, I feel so productive. Like we're getting back into the swing of things with ain't no free lunch. Yeah, we just got to see if we can maintain it because I feel like we like get back in the swing of things and then we fall off and then we get back in the swing of things and then we fall off. I told you that even if it's midnight, you know, I'm down for the cause. So down for the cause. I just have so much. I mean, I knew that this degree was going to be work, but it's work. (laughs) And I'm just like, I think it took me off guard a little bit. So now that I'm getting like my systems down and all that jazz, I I can figure out where I can like make time um, for the cause. So. Yeah, so Roy Moore. So uh, Mitch McConnell just came out and said Roy Moore need to step aside. Uh, you know, that special election is less than 30 days away now. So for people who don't know what's going on, Roy Roy Moore is an Alabama. Is he a senator right now? Or he was on the uh, he was on the Supreme Court, the Alabama yeah. Supreme Court. Yeah. And he's running for um, Jeff Sessions. I think Jeff Sessions. Mm-hmm. Jeff Sessions' positions, a position as U.S. Senator, but all of these allegations have recently like come out of women who are reporting that um, when he was like in his 30s, he was pursuing them when they were teenagers. Not just pursuing them, like I think there's one that's actually rape, but sexually assaulting. I heard sexual assault. I haven't heard rape, but I know like the youngest person. I mean, these allegations came out recently, but they happened supposedly over like 30 years ago. And he basically like the youngest person that he pursued and or sexually assaulted was 14 years old when he was a 32 year old man. Yeah, there there are a couple instances of him uh, pursuing teenage women or teenage girls. So uh, a couple (laughs) things there, like I don't want to really go down this rabbit hole, but did you hear what the auditor said? No, I didn't. The auditor, Alabama's, one of Alabama's auditors, like justified it by saying, well, Mary was a teenager and Joseph was a grown man. Oh, I did see that. Right. But the whole point of that was, number one, it's called she's the Virgin Mary for for a reason. And number two, like, where does it say their ages? Like I went through and I was like looking at articles and there were a couple of um, responses from like clergy members who were like, we actually have no idea how old they were. So, yeah. So that's disgusting. But Mitch McConnell, you know, like if, if you put it in context, like even though like I've never read that in the Bible anywhere in my studies, like Mm -hmm. I don't really doubt it because it was pretty common at the time for 
for but women, that's not for girls. An excuse. Yeah, like, yeah. How do you justify something that happened, you know, two thousand years ago to something today? So I have I have like a couple of things. One, I just think it's disgusting that people try to use Christianity in or like religion in general As to a promote their own yeah, to promote their own agenda. Like you can't say that, you know, a lot of these same people they're saying like homosexuality leads to pedophilia. But then turn around and use the Bible to justify pedophilia. Like what are you talking about? Number one, there is no connection between homosexuality and pedophilia. And number two, Regardless, pedophilia is disgusting. Okay, then the next thing I have to say is Mitch McConnell. Like, I saw it that that's what he said, and I saw that he was like he should step aside. But bro, how many women have accused Roy Moore, and how many women have accused Donald Trump? And I haven't heard you say anything, nothing. Yeah. So this is the you don't believe none of them. Yes. Yeah. He actually said, "I believe the women," in reference to Moore. Which the interesting thing about all of this is like even if Moore steps aside, his name is on the ballot like they Ugh. can't remove his name from the ballot. And I don't doubt that Roy Moore will win. It's disgusting. So, uh. you know, I think the Senate now there are some things that the Senate can do like they can censure him, which means basically mm-hmm. he doesn't have a vote. They can allow him not to caucus with the Republican Party. But overall, like his name is on the ballot, no matter what, his name is going to be on the ballot. And so I was like doing some research, Alabama Speaker of the House mm-hmm. in their state general assembly or their state legislature. He had been indicted and still got elected. And they only <sighs> and then they read <laughs> Alabama Republicans reelected him as Speaker of the House while he had an indictment. And. uh he was only removed once he had actually been convicted. So I don't doubt that Roy Moore will probably win this election next Ugh. month. And so the ball will be in the Senate Republicans court to see what they do. Ugh. I just, I can't even discuss it anymore because like my skin crawls, literally my skin crawls. It's disgusting. So, you know, there's this thing here, though, like you're innocent into proven guilty in a court of law, but mm-hmm. with like the burden of proof isn't as high for electoral politics, right? You know, perception right. alone can be enough. So I, you know, I think it'll be interesting, be an interesting few days to the end of the year here in, mm-hmm. in the United States Senate. Ugh. Ugh. But let's get down to business. So we wanted to kind of avoid the typical political um we didn't avoid it we just finished talking about it we can't help ourselves <laughs> it's, we actually had a conversation saying like hey this week let's let's not engage in too much politics but yeah, yeah. It, it is without digress yeah so today we are 
attempting to tackle the opioid crisis. Right. Which um, I think everyone knows someone that's probably been affected by this, but we want to kind of give you all an overview of it, the history of the war on drugs in America. And then, you know, our goal is always to give you some solutions. Right. And of course, like, we wouldn't be who we are if we didn't put, it's not just to give it the history, but put, place it into context. And again, you know, racial politics falls into pretty much everything that happens in America. So we're going to kind of frame it in, in that way. So, all right, let's rock. Yeah. So the opioid epidemic is the largest drug epidemic in recorded history, resulting in over a half million deaths since 2000. Right. So for me, I didn't exactly understand what was going on. I didn't understand what opioids were. Like I knew about the opium wars in like China from like a long time ago, but I didn't understand like it in the context of like the United States of America. So the way that they're mostly prescribed today, I think is through like painkillers, right? right? And prescription pills and and those things are extremely strong. Like I remember I got surgery in like 11th grade on my knee and my mom was like, nah, because <laughs> they gave me like Valium. They gave me they gave me a whole bunch of like heavy, heavy stuff. My mom had me on that stuff for two days and then was like, nah, you good. You're going to be on Advil. <laughs> she was like, you don't play with this stuff because they it's it's highly, highly addictive. And it doesn't, and like highly addictive, not saying like, oh, everybody, it, it, <coughs> what I'm basically saying is like, it don't take much, right? Right. And it's derived from like poppy plants, right? Yeah. And so basically opioids bind to receptors in the brain and spinal cord, disrupting pain signals. And so they, and then they activate reward areas of the brain, releasing the hormone dopamine creating a feeling of euphoria or hotness. Yeah. I just, did you ever watch that show? Um, Intervention. Yeah. You used to come bit. on A and E. I used yeah. to love that show, but like, like reflecting on it over half of the people on there were addicted to opioids and like opioids aren't just like pills. It's also like the morphine that they give your body when you are in the hospital. Right. Right or like codeine or so like we use it in so many different ways. Um, heroin is actually made from morphine. Right. So ugh, it's just, ugh, it's very scary. Yeah. Um, and, and so like growing up when we used to sit in physical education in the mm -hmm. health version of it, you know, we always talked about these gateway drugs. Right. And right. so like, it seems as if the gateway drug or the gateway to addiction has always been something legal. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what's happening with the opioid crisis. Like people have been introduced and they're getting this great feeling of euphoria in like prescription medicine. And then mm -hmm. if they can't get their hands on prescription medicine. Then they go to the street version of it, which is like heroin. Right. And as someone that has, served as a substance abuse counselor for a few years. We always talk about crack. Like mm -hmm. 
crack babies and crackheads, the things they will do to get their next high. Mm-hmm. Like, the things people do for the next hit of heroin, like crack doesn't compare to it at all. Right. So let's just put it in like perspective. Uh, you just said that like over half a million deaths since right. 2000, right? We had in 2016 alone, not just in terms of like opioids or heroin or morphine or any of that, just drug overdose deaths in general, almost like 60,000 people. Right. Right. And then we had an increase of deaths related from heroin between like 2002 and 2006 of over 500%. That's a lot. Yeah. 500%. So Vox had an estimate that said also like in 2015, around almost 9 million people in the United States have misused opioid painkillers. So like that's just talking like prescription pills and how like doctors and and the thing about it is it's, it's so real. It's so easy to go to the doctor and get prescribed some form of painkiller. Like you don't, I mean, now I think there's been, because of the national conversation around this, now it's been like, I think doctors are becoming more conscious of it. But like when, do you remember? No, I don't think we had met at this point. My first year teaching, I like popped a joint in my neck and went to the doctor. The doctor was like, oh, and just gave me a whole bunch of like painkillers. I went to the chiropractor. Chiropractor was like, throw those in the trash. You don't need them. And fix me in like two weeks. The doctor only gave me painkillers. And you know, part of the issue with that is, you know, people can doctor shop. So I think that Mm -hmm. one of the advantages of the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, people are kind of streamlining systems with these electronic management systems. So if you go to one doctor, what people used to do, like they would go to one doctor and they would get a prescription, right? And then they would go to another doctor and say, I'm in so much pain and they get another prescription. And Mm -hmm. there was no way of the doctors knowing, oh man, like this other doctor just prescribed this prescription to Danielle last week. So as much as people like really complain about Obamacare, I think that's one of the advantages with these electronic management systems. Yeah, because I mean that and on that show intervention, that's what they would do. They would hop from doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor. Um you call and it get doctor as much shopping. as they could. Yeah. Doctor. It was it was just nuts. Um, but like I said before, I really feel like the conversation is is starting to change. Um, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about why the conversation surrounding addiction is starting to change. Um, but like it's been basically reported that people even like uh, addiction specialists are like they're trying to stop use words like addiction um, because it has such a stigmatizing history. Yeah. And it does have a stigmatizing history. Um, this is the first time in my life that I've ever heard drug abusers or people who have issues with substance abuse be referred to as people who need treatment and not punishment. Like growing up, I always heard that like those are bad people. Right. Like that. That was the narrative that you got. It was and who, who did you hear bad. that from? 
just at literally everyone and you know that health class yeah. that you were talking about like there was there there was no understanding of like addiction is can be a disease politicians right politicians like ev- literally everybody dare like d i won't do drugs a won't have an act did you know did you did you learn uh, that song? We never learned that song, but yes, I participated uh, in it. I will respect myself. Eat. <laughs> I will educate you now. Yeah, it's a great, great song. So but yeah, it was always like they're terrible humans. Yeah, isn't Dare a product of Reagan's War on Drugs? Say no. Oh, absolutely. Drugs. Yeah. It it didn't do much good, um, <laughs> but we were sitting in that classroom. I mean, yeah. So. Yeah. All right. So drug dependent babies are now like they're being born to the mothers of opioid abusers. Right. Right. And we have and it's just been on the increase because of the rise in opioid usage. Yeah. Which, which is very interesting to me, because like as much as we say things like or as much as many Americans have embraced this idea of not being politically correct. We're mm-hmm. being politically correct in this regard because, oh, yeah. you know, 20, 30 years ago and more recent than that as well, you know, mm-hmm. we were calling them crack babies and oh, yeah. junkies and crackheads and welfare queens. Um, that was that was common conversation use. Like yeah. it wasn't a drug dependent baby born to the mother of an opioid abuser. It was like that junkie had a crack baby. Yeah. What well, now? Kind of like, let's be real. Playing devil's advocate here, we have evolved, and uh, and a number of other things like twi- during that same era, like using a term like crazy and retarded was mm. was appropriate. You know, it's like, oh, that's okay. So that's fair, but I feel like the reason why we quote unquote, and I've got like air bunny like around the word we. Is because of who the abusers are. Like, there's been a fundamental shift, not necessarily saying that, like, um, it's in a complete shift, but there's been a large shift at who is now the face of people who are addicted to drugs, particularly opioids, and it's white people. Back in back in the 1980s, crack babies, junkies, crack kids, welfare queens, all of that, that was referring to black people. And I think that there's been a fundamental shift we, we, in this particular like area because we've shifted in, positively in a lot of different ways. Um, and in some ways, we're still really backwards. So I think this part- in particular was a shift because the faces of the people that we were seeing that were strung out, addicted, are the faces of white people. And Americans in the United States they tend to not view white people as inherently bad. Like so, that, that's just like the narrative. So basically you're saying the opioid epidemic has been met and um, treated with compassion and creativity, empathy. And mm-hmm. 30 years ago during the height of the crack epidemic, it was like scorn and punishment. Complete scorn and punishment. And addiction was a criminal offense at that time. Oh, it is. It it was. And for some people and in some drugs, it still is a criminal offense. 
right? But opioids in particular have become the face of, oh, well, you know, it's these people, like, they need our help. And honestly, like, I don't want to make it seem like I am unsympathetic or I cannot empathize with people, with white people who are opioid abusers. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is we're what we're not going to do is sit here and say that this is like uh, everyone just had a change of heart. No, the people who are in charge, they started seeing people who were their sons, their daughters, their wives, themselves addicted to this, right? Their yeah. family members addicted to this. So obviously they don't want to criminalize the, their families, the people who look like them, because, you know, obviously they're just sick. But when it's black people, we're othered. Yeah, so... I think you like, that's a great point. Like I'm, I definitely understand that this is an epidemic, but I think it's reckless for us to ignore it in context. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we definitely have to have this conversation to understand how we can move forward. And so Hillary Clinton. Oh yeah. You know, you know, know I'd be ready to come. (laughs) She got taken a task last year during the campaign. Uh She did um, over her comment about super predators who needed to be brought to heal. Right. And she was talking those super predators that she's talking about are the people that were addicted to crack, crack cocaine and people selling it. Oh, yeah. And, and then, so, you know, Bill, like back, he doubled down on it. He about did his double crime down bill. on it and he doubled down on it. Um, kind of again, when he 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 remember he was being protested at one of her. And he was like, uh, he was like, no, like he still doubled down on it. He he did come around and say, you know, especially Joe Biden, I know, especially said like the crime bill was was wrong. Right. But you have to look at why at the time America permitted this type of conversation around crack cocaine to happen. Right. Because they separated themselves because a lot of white and well-off people, they could just push it to the side, you know, not look at it, just lock them up because they're inherently bad people and don't even think about it. I mean, it's, it's a part of what it's a part of mass incarceration. Yeah. And so I know we don't have time to go down this rabbit hole, but it's really interesting how in hindsight, you know, a number of people, we look at the crime bill. We look at the disparities in sentencing for crack and powder cocaine. Mm-hmm. Right. And we always say, hey, it was racially motivated. Um, so for those of y'all don't know, historically, five grams of crack cocaine, which was his, which has historically been used by people of color and poor people, five grams warranted five years in prison. Mm-hmm. but you had to have 500 grams of powder cocaine which was the five thousand rec- grams no it was 500 it was 500 okay and that was the recreational drug for like more affluent people in america and so you had to have you know 100 times more what what the poor people are using to receive the same uh mandatory minimum right and that that lasted until the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010 that came through with Eric Holder and Obama. But it's still and not Obama. it's still not one to one. It's like 19 oh, no. to one now. Oh, no, because at the end of the day, like. The, what what drives me crazy is when people are saying like things like this is just like not racially motivated. 
Like it's very clearly racial. It's like racial politics. Yeah. Right? But so to push back on that a little bit, like this was overwhelmingly supported black by the black community. Like by black community members in power, specifically politicians who yes. have internalized oppression. And uh, like at the end of the day, like you can even look at it like with and this is not to make excuse. They were wrong. Right. They shouldn't have supported those measures. But at the end of the day, you have to understand, like. So many people internalize that black is bad, that black people are akin to animals who need to be controlled and it's just imbued and embedded into our society and internalized impression. White supremacy has made this framework that makes it seem like. When when we are in like this, I don't even know how to express it. Like I'm thinking of like that picture from Hurricane Katrina where you had that white couple and they were scat like they were finding food and then you had that <laughs> black man who had who was looting like yeah. you know what i'm saying doing the exact same thing but we are programmed to understand it as as black people when we have the worst of intentions yeah so i think that's my that's really my question about it was this like so obviously when we discussed this this summer about Project Exile, like crime was rising nationally at the time, right? Mm -hmm. So around the same time as the crack epidemic. So was this was crime rising because of crack or was crime just rising as just a coincidence? Because that was kind of the the defense that a lot of black legislators used at the time. They said, Well, things were bad crack was ravishing the community like we had to do something so we thought that this would be an incentive to like push people away from crack instead of treatment like we're doing now right the idea well, yeah. was that we just lock them up throw away the key and while they're in prison which we know that this is definitely not the case but while they're in prison they just won't use drugs and they'll come back out in five years and they'll be these law-abiding citizens and but the thing about happen. it is, but the thing about it is like I understand that like with time, science, all those other things, our understandings of concepts change. But crack was not the first like drug epidemic to hit the United States, right? Facts. We have had issues with drug and drug abuse for years. Right. And the problem that I see with this is that people who have been able to historically protect their children when they get into trouble or they um, become like abusers of some kind, that's what they do. You have to understand that the crap, not even you, like people have to understand that like the crack epidemic, like pretty much almost exclusively exclusively impacted people of color living in poor neighborhoods. So even your politicians that are in the, in uh, wherever they were making, I might lost my train of thought, but anyway, like these legislators, especially during this time period where we're talking like respectability politics out the wazoo, like these people, they're at a certain point, they're removed from these people living in these poor neighborhoods. Right. And as a result, we have hundreds of thousands of black people, Latinos who ended up with drug violations. Yeah. And, you know, that's I can speak for like my community. 
you received more time for drug violations. And a lot of these people were drug users, not drug. Mm -hmm. Like they weren't drug dealers. You received more more time for drug offenses than you did for murder. Right. Which is nuts. And that's why mandatory sentencing doesn't make sense. Yeah. So in my community, historically, um, you have five years for actually committing a murder. Then two, you receive two years for using a firearm in the commission of a felony. So seven years for a murder charge and people with drug offenses, like every barber that I had growing up, they went away to prison. And some of these people, you know, 13, 15, 17, mm-hmm. 22 years for minor drug offenses in the grand scheme of things. So basically, Tens of thousands of African-Americans across America ended up with prison sentences for minor drug violations, which are consistent with addiction and not selling. Mm -hmm. And like overall, when you when you have that, when you have these people who have these offenses on their records, um, who are removed from their families, that contributes to the decay of their community. Right. right. Because you're 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 breaking up strongholds and families. And, and I just I just I get really frustrated when I look at our response to the opioid crisis when it's put within the context of how we responded to the crack epidemic. Well, I so get frustrated. I think it's appropriate for us to like as we frame this conversation kind of come along to our solutions, uh, Nixon's domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman, who was also like an integral part of Watergate. He said Mm -hmm. in an interview recently, the Nixon campaign, and I quote the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon white house after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin (coughs) and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. Yeah, that's a direct quote. Like, like, just let that settle. You know what I mean? He like finish it my bad i didn't even mean to cut you off like i just got i just needed everybody to like resonate like let that resonate that's a direct quote we could arrest their leaders raid their homes break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news did we know we were lying about the drugs of course we did end quote it's nuts so race has everything to do with it everything to do with it and i and i can't understand how someone could argue anything to the contrary people like the face of the opioid crisis and that's not even to say that black people aren't using heroin aren't using opioids that's not what i'm saying i'm saying that the face of this drug has shifted and because the face of this drug has shifted to be something that is more palatable to the american public then all of a sudden now we need to have sympathy. We're still locking people up off of marijuana. Letting people whole grow, grow, you know what I mean? Like, and dispense. And then you're locking people up for like small. Quantities. Like a, yeah, small quantities 
of marijuana. Well, not even that. Like what? Not even just that. Uh, We talked about this, I think, in the Brock Turner case last year. But we are people are violating probation for using like marijuana in small quantities. So isn't Meek Mills getting um, locked up for a a violation like two years? Yeah. So, you know, that's the interesting thing. Like as we we are refocusing and saying, okay, the war on drugs was ineffective. Um, Maybe we should like look more into treatment instead of criminalization. But when it affects people of color to this day, it's still like it's still the criminal offense instead of treatment. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And so, like I say, I'm not minimizing this epidemic or this crisis at all, because you, it's we, definitely no, no. it's definitely an issue that we need to combat. We need to figure out like solutions for it, which we're about to give you some. But I don't think that we can like ignore it. And just say, oh, this doesn't compare to anything else because it has. Right. And and yeah, it has. And I think that's like my whole point. I think a lot of times just in the feedback that I've received that it seems like I am being insensitive to the plight of people who are addicted. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, oh, we should treat the opioid crisis in the same way that we should, we treated um, people from the crap epidemic. Like, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is like, yay, good job that we're doing this, but now let's talk about why we're doing it. And let's talk about how it differed from the way that we treated things before. And right. And so Trump declared the opioid epidemic, a health emergency, but he hasn't requested any funds to combat it yet. None. None. Which I find interesting. Like I don't find much. I want to applaud Trump on, but that's one of the things that I agree with him on. It's like, Oh, this is a health emergency. But how are you going to combat it? And um, so, you know, kind of coming to solutions, what do you have for us, Danielle? So I think that it's important that we acknowledge hypocrisy, right? Mm. And that's, that's, that's what I feel like that's my, my goal right now is first you, we need to acknowledge when we're wrong and we've done people wrong and that the fact of the matter is the way that we treated people before has a legacy that is continuing to contribute to the dismantling of you know their ability to provide for themselves dismantling of their community dis- dismantling of our perceptions of who gets to be whole who gets to be a person and when we acknowledge that hypocrisy we then need to vow to do better Right. And vow to do better, not just when it's based on mutual interest or self-preservation. Yeah. And so in regard to that acknowledging hypocrisy, like I think something that we can do, like how about we expunge the record of some of these people that or all of these people that have these petty drug violations. And, you know, those things are limiting them on public housing, um, public assistance. Mm-hmm. student loans like it's limited them so much and i think that contributes to you know a lot of the other things that we're dealing with in america inequity yeah right. it it it, it def- most definitely comes down to in- inequity and i just i i don't know i just feel really really strongly 
about that. We need to have a perception change about who is considered an addict mm-hmm. or because we have people who are substance abusers and then we have people who are addicts. You know what I mean? Right. We have people who are taken over by this disease and then we have junkies, right? right? So we need to understand that we need to have compassion and empathy as a country not just for the upper class, not just for white people, but with anyone who is struggling with any form of substance abuse. Yeah, and so local law enforcement agencies need grants to acquire and learn how to use naloxone, which is like the main drug to to block the effects of opiates. So naloxone, the most common form of it is Narcan. Mm-hmm. But if someone has overdosed, um like you can use it it's like a nasal spray i think they have a an a needle version as well but if you use narcan like people would just snap right back in up because it will block you know how we talked about right. the pain receptors and how it like attaches to one part of the brain and the spinal cord narcan will separate the opiate away from it and so one of the it and so this is something that trump can do you know while he's like granting all this money for the militarization of police departments like we can use that money instead to fight this opioid crisis because law enforcement agencies are a lot of times the first responders you know like they don't they have to call in an ambulance or fire department but they're the first people there and so they need these resources one but number two they need to learn how to administer them because there have been some instances where law enforcement officers like tried to administer these resources and mm-hmm. they ended up like getting high and overdosing themselves just by touching it. Right. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of education that needs to happen surrounding addiction and drugs, especially on in terms of the people who are going to be on the front lines to prevent it. Right. And I think uh, emergency departments are one of those places where we need a lot of education on like how and what to do after treating someone that was in crisis. Right. Someone that was Mm -hmm. using because, you know, coordination and continuing of care, I think, are very important. So unfortunately, what happens, you know, a lot of times people go to the emergency room, you know, let's say you cut your leg or I fell off my bike. I go to the emergency room and they treat me. And then I, you know, I follow up my PCP. But when people are in crisis or have like an opioid overdose, like they go to the emergency room and there's no connection. I think a lot of people are doing this work, but we have to find ways to connect them and say, okay, this is a person you need to talk to, or this is a person you should follow up with this organization. So, Yeah, no. And I think that's important because it's not just what we do. Like addiction, when you're addicted, you are you you are addicted for life. Like it's not something that just like goes away because of whatever interventions that we put in. This is something that people struggle with substance abuse for literally the rest of their lives. Right. And so we need to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm recovering forever. Right. And I feel like it's so important that we have an understanding as as a community, but also like those emergency department personnel that you were talking about, about how to continue to recover. Right. 
because it's not a one and done thing. Just because you haven't engaged with this type of um, substance abuse, like, a, you know, substance in a year doesn't mean that you can't fall back. So I think that it's super imperative. Like if we're going to really try to destroy the, the way that this drug is ravaging our communities, it has to be a long-term plan. There is no quick fix to any of this. Right. And so kind of coming in closing, I think we really need to study and address why people are using and selling drugs. Right. So some people are using simply because they are in pain uh, physically. Some people are in pain emotionally. Some people are trying to escape their reality. But mm-hmm. and there are other reasons as well. I'm not trying to simplify why people are using drugs. Absolutely. But I think that like we need to address those things instead of like looking at the person and what they're doing. We need to look at why they're doing it. And so mm-hmm. if we can kind of create some interventions and some prevention around why they may be doing these things. You know, a lot of people are in poverty, like they're struggling financially. So if we can mm-hmm. help them there, maybe we can help them with their recovery as well. Yeah, I think it is going to be an ongoing battle. I think what um, 45 has done is not sufficient. It needs to be, we know we definitely need to have some type of resources going directly towards making sure that this is something that um, we, we, we fix. And again, there's no quick fix, um, but I think the more seriously we take it, um, and by seriously, I mean not through thoughts and prayers, but through <laughs> money and legislation, um, this is something that we can try to get ahead of. So, uh, did we eat today? I think we did. I think we're getting back in the swing of things. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm just happy to be here. Happy I can make time. Finally, that means my life is getting in order. So, uh, so maybe one of our listeners will buy Danielle a calendar. I-